0: Welcome back, Crimesters. It's your girl, Holly, and today I have an unsolved murder case for you guys. This case was suggested on Instagram by one of my followers named Emma, so thank you, Emma, so much for suggesting this case. This is a case that I was not familiar with, and it happened in 1989, which was the year that I was born in. In October, we hit the 34th anniversary of this sweet girl's murder. To me, this is one of those cases that I believe could be easily solved with someone coming forward with a little information. It just needs another witness or a small tip to really blow this case wide open. I do want to give you guys a quick warning because this case does involve the death of a child, and I know that these cases can be extremely hard for people to listen to, as they are pretty hard for me to cover. But despite it being hard for me to cover, these cases are so important to continue sharing their stories, especially when the case is unsolved. But I do understand that some people just have a hard time, so if you're one who struggles with that, please just skip right over this episode. So without further ado, let's get into the details. Today's case is on the kidnapping and brutal murder of 10-year-old Amy Maholovic. On December 11, 1978, Amy Renee Maholovic was born to her parents Mark and Margaret in Little Rock, Arkansas. Amy was their second child, and she had a big brother named Jason. In 1984, Mark and Margaret moved their family out of Arkansas and moved to an area called Bay Village, Ohio. According to the Wikipedia on Bay Village, it's a city that is located along the southern shore of Lake Erie and is a western suburb of Cleveland. Bay Village is not a teeny city by any means, but I also wouldn't classify it as a super large city either. According to the 1990 census, Bay Village was home to around 17,000 people. So again, not massive, but decently sized. It's reported by WKYC that Bay Village was named the sixth safest city in the United States by Family Circle magazine back in the late 1980s. So when Mark transferred to Ohio from his job as a field rep for Buick in Little Rock, he and Margaret were very excited to begin this new chapter of their lives in Bay Village. Mark and Margaret were originally from Wisconsin, where they met in high school and then ended up marrying in 1972. When the family moved to Bay Village, they settled into a cute house that they made a home, and all was well for five years before tragedy struck. Growing up, Amy was a very outgoing and friendly and adventurous little girl. She absolutely loved animals, especially horses, and she spent a lot of her free time at a local stable known as the Holly Hills Stables. Any chance that she could get, Amy would be on the back of her favorite horse at the stable named Razzle. Amy felt really connected to animals and really enjoyed being around them, and she enjoyed being outside in nature as well. She also loved spending her free time at the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center. She loved to learn about animals, their habitats, and also how to help them if they were injured. Amy's dream was to grow up and someday become a veterinarian. Amy was very bright and was always so eager to learn something new. She was a part of the gifted class at school. Amy also was not shy at all, and unlike most kids, she had no problem speaking to adults. She would talk to them with a lot of confidence, and honestly, from the sounds of it, it sounds like she was just wise beyond her years. If an adult was talking to Amy's parents, Amy would often get in on the conversation and chat with them too. Amy had an extremely close relationship with her mother, and many referred to her as Margaret's shadow. Wherever Margaret went, Amy was never far behind her. So Amy and her brother were considered latchkey children. And this is actually a term that I had never heard of until I was watching a video about this case. But pretty much what that means is that they are children who would be home alone without adult supervision for some part of the day. Usually kids who are without adult supervision are only home alone for a few hours after school before their parents would get home from work. And that was the case with Amy and her brother she and her brother Jason would get home from school, and they would be there for a few hours before Margaret and Mark got off work. Now, I know there's differing opinions on supervision for children after school. However, it is not uncommon for underage children with working parents to be home alone. I know personally, my sisters and I were often home alone after school due to my parents still having to work. And of course, when all of this took place, it was in the late 80s, and times were so different for children back then. This is back when kids used the streetlights turning on as their cue to go home at night. Everyone felt safe leaving their doors unlocked and cars unlocked. Plus, to the Mahalovic family, Bay Village was a top rated place to live in the country, and it was known to just be this safe bubble. So Amy had this best friend named Christy Sabo, and the two were practically joined at the hip. Amy would often go over to Christy's house after school, and Christy's mom considered Amy to be like a second daughter to her. She was practically part of the family, and Christy's mom enjoyed having Amy over, and it made her feel good knowing that Amy wasn't home alone. Christy and Amy were vibrant little girls with such big dreams and big ideas, The girls even created their own babysitter's club in the summer of 1989. These little entrepreneurs wanted to make a business out of babysitting, so they went as far as creating flyers to pass out to the neighborhood. They wanted to advertise their services, and they had their phone numbers attached. I gotta say that I admire a couple of girls trying to hustle and make some extra money. Of course, they got their ideas from the Babysitter's Club books, which was a popular series back in the late 80s and early 90s. In October of 1989, Amy and her brother Jason were in the beginning months of the new school year. Both kids were attending Bay Village Middle School, with Amy being in 5th grade and Jason being in 7th. Back then, for whatever reason, the younger kids at the school were released earlier than the older kids. So Amy was done with her school day at 2:05 p.m. and Jason was finished an hour later at 3:05. Amy usually would ride her bike straight home and then hang out there until Jason got home. On Friday, October 27th, 1989, the after-school plan for that day was going to be a little bit different. Amy had told her mom that she was going to be staying at the school for a choir audition. This was really exciting for Margaret because it seemed like Amy was going to follow in her footsteps since she herself was a singer. The day started off as any ordinary, cool, and crisp fall morning. Amy rode her bike to school alone that morning. Sometimes she would meet up with a friend in the morning to ride bikes, but on that day she rode alone. The school wasn't far from their home, so it was a pretty quick ride for her. Amy left her home at 7.20 a.m. and rode the short trip to the school where she put her bike in the bike rack and went inside. On that morning, Amy was wearing a light green sweatsuit, short black boots, turquoise horse head shaped earrings, as well as a white windbreaker jacket. She was also carrying her backpack that contained a black notebook that had a buckle on it that said best in class. This notebook is important because it was very unique to Amy. It had been given to her by her father, who had gotten it from his work at Buick. No one else in her school had a notebook like it. On this day, Amy's class had a special guest come in and speak to the kids. It was a patrol officer who was there to educate kids about stranger danger and safety. Mark Spetzel was the young patrol officer who spoke to the class that day, and he told Dateline that he often wonders if he could have said something else that would have saved Amy. During his discussion, he taught the kids about not going with people you don't know, don't get into a stranger's car, and so on. After that talk wrapped up for her class, Amy went off to lunch. While at lunch, she was chatting with her friends and told them that she had a really big secret. She said that she had received a phone call from a man who wanted to take her to go buy a gift for her mother. She told her friends that the man worked with her mom and that the man wanted her help picking out a present for her mom because her mom was going to get a big promotion at work. She said that they were going to go to the mall with $45 to purchase this gift. Amy was really excited and animated about this opportunity to surprise her mom. She told her girlfriend that it was a big secret and her mom had no idea. Of course, this information wouldn't come out until it was too late. After lunch, the day continued as it would any ordinary day. At 2.04 p.m., the bell rang and school was over. After collecting her things, Amy walked with a few friends to Bay Square, which Bay Square is a little strip mall that was located just a quarter mile up the road from Amy's school. In this strip mall, they had little stores and an ice cream shop that kids would often go to after school. During her walk to the plaza, Amy told another little girl about her plans to meet up with this man to shop for a gift for her mom. According to that little girl, Amy didn't seem nervous. She didn't seem worried. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Just sweet little Amy excited about doing something special for her mother. Two students from the middle school stated that they saw Amy walk up and wait beside a black metal pole at the plaza outside of a barber shop. Now, both of these boys were on opposite ends of the plaza from each other with Amy standing somewhere in the middle, waiting near this black pole. These two boys hadn't been at the plaza together when they saw Amy. They both were doing their own thing there, and they both recall seeing Amy waiting. Each boy stated that they had seen Amy waiting there alone, and then a man walked up and started talking to her. This was something that they kind of witnessed in passing and didn't really pay super close attention to, so it wasn't like they were zoned in on what Amy was doing. However, she stuck out to both of these boys for whatever reason, and they both recall that after seeing the man walk up, they briefly look away to do whatever they were doing, and when they looked back, Amy was gone. They didn't hear anything, there was no commotion, there was no struggle, so it seems that Amy felt comfortable with whomever it was and went willingly. Around 3pm, Amy's brother Jason arrived at home after school, and he instantly noticed that Amy wasn't in the living room watching TV like she usually did after school. After checking around the house and seeing Amy nowhere, Jason called his mom at work to tell her that Amy wasn't home. But Margaret wasn't concerned and she told Jason that Amy had stayed after school for the audition. Jason hung up the phone with his mother and went about his daily after-school routine which included homework, a few chores, and then just hanging out. Not long after that conversation with Jason, Margaret received yet another phone call at work at 3:30 p.m. This time it was Amy calling, and it was to just check in. Margaret had assumed that Amy had made it home from school at that point and that she was just phoning to check in once she got home, like she did daily. There was nothing unsettling about this phone call. Amy seemed in good spirits. She didn't seem upset or distraught or uncomfortable. But back in the 1980s, there was no caller ID. Margaret had no way of telling that Amy wasn't at home calling her, and she had just assumed that she was. Now, what blows my mind about this entire phone call situation is that whoever this man was, he had some major guts to have his victim call her mother. He had no way of telling how this conversation would go. He had no way of knowing if Margaret would have asked Amy if she was at home or how her bike ride home was or any other question that she could have came up with he felt comfortable enough to allow that conversation to play out naturally like it would. And in my opinion, that just shows how thought out and methodical this man was. Not only did this call put Margaret at ease, making her think her child was back home safely, which means she wouldn't be thinking about Amy getting home or wondering when she was going to call because she called already. So in her mind, she was there. She was safe. All was well. So this essentially bought this guy more time from when Margaret would alert the authorities when she got home. I think the entire thing with her calling her mom made Amy that much more comfortable with him and had her even more at ease with this guy. Unfortunately, back then, calls being made within a local area code weren't even logged, so they couldn't track where this phone call even came from. There is absolutely no telling where exactly Amy was when that call was made. Investigators do believe, however, that there is a chance that the phone call took place at the Westgate Mall, which this mall is located about six miles away from the shopping plaza that Amy had gone to. And the reason they believe that this is a possibility is due to an eyewitness stating that they saw a little girl that looked like Amy with a man shopping. The witness had seen this man and little girl shopping sometime between 3 and 4 p.m. And that call to Amy's mother happened at 3.30 p.m. So the timeline kind of lines up. Police believe that is a possibility that this man was still going with his story, that they were going shopping for her mother, and that was why Amy was potentially at that mall. And also why Amy didn't seem upset or worried when she called her mother. She wasn't at a weird place. It all seemed like everything was going as planned. At 5.30 p.m., Margaret arrived back home to find that Amy was, in fact, not there, nor had she ever come home, according to her son, Jason. Margaret rushed down to the school and saw that her daughter's blue bike was the only bike that was left at the school in the bike rack, and a heavy feeling came over her. Something wasn't right. She immediately phoned police, and when Amy's father Mark arrived at home after work, he pulled up to pure chaos, and that is when he learned that his daughter was missing. He immediately loaded up the family dog and went out searching for Amy, hoping that the dog would catch her scent and lead him to her. The neighbors were alerted very quickly of what was going on, and they all started their own search. One neighbor with Amy's picture in hand rushed down to the local news stations and demanded that they plaster her picture all over the television immediately. She told them that she wasn't going to leave until they did, and thankfully, they agreed and started pumping out Amy's picture and information all over the news. When Margaret saw her daughter's picture on the news, she completely lost it. She just screamed uncontrollably. That night, as the hours ticked by and the family waited for any kind of news, Margaret slept on the floor under their corded phone that was hung neatly in their kitchen. She was just waiting for the phone to ring and for her to hear that they found her precious Amy safe, but that phone call would never come. The following day, the search for Amy continued and Mark and Margaret went on television to beg and plead for answers. They were featured on all of the local news stations along with Amy's face. Posters began going up around town, and it wasn't long before tips started to come in. Investigators worked to interview Amy's family, neighbors, teachers, and friends. And this is when they learned about the phone call from the man claiming he worked with Margaret and how he wanted to buy her a gift for her promotion. The authorities made up a letter to send home to parents of students that attended schools within the area. The letter detailed what they knew so far about Amy's abduction and how Amy had received that phone call. It requested that anyone who may have also received a similar phone call to please contact the authorities immediately. Two other young girls had received phone calls that were eerily similar. These two, now women, were interviewed by Dateline, and the first one said that when she got the phone call, the man identified himself as her mother's boss, and he even used the boss's name. He told her that her mom received a promotion at work, he was so excited for her, and the entire team wanted to get her a special gift. He stated that they didn't know what to get her, so he wanted to pick her up after school, take her with him to help find a gift. The girl started speaking to her brother, who was also in the room at the time, telling him about the plan to get their mom this gift, and the man's tone on the phone immediately changed. He became very angry, telling her that she was going to ruin the surprise, and the girl apologized and said that she couldn't go. The second woman told Dateline that she spoke to this man on a few different occasions, but she said oddly when he would call, her mom was never at home. So whoever this person was knew well enough when to call so that the mob wouldn't get tipped off. Now, this woman states that during the times that she spoke to this man on the phone, there was always a car that was parked outside of the house, and she believes that that was the man watching her. She claimed that eventually her older sister forced her off the phone, and so obviously she never met with the man. Now, both of these women, when interviewed by Dateline, requested that their identities be hidden. They are still fearful that that man is out there somewhere watching them. I can only imagine what fear that they've lived with. And not only fear, but also I'm sure they have some sort of survivor's guilt knowing that Amy's story turned out much different than their own. With these two new stories and information coming about, the investigators were left trying to scramble to find a link between all three girls. The families of all three girls were brought in to fill out questionnaires to try and find that link. The questions asked about places they shopped at, did they use the same dry cleaners, did they use the same dentist, take their cars to the same mechanics to be worked on. The questions went on and on, trying to find some sort of commonality for the authorities to work off of. And surprisingly, there wasn't a single thing that they could link these three families together. And that is absolutely insane to me. Now, the two boys that saw Amy meet with this man, they came forward around this time and provided details to create a composite sketch. Both of the boys kind of remember things a little bit differently, so they have two composite sketches for what this man allegedly looked like that they saw, and I will have those on Instagram for you guys to check out. Obviously, the boys weren't super zeroed in on the situation, but you never know, anything could help. They do kind of look similar, but one of them has glasses, one of them doesn't. One boy remembers glasses while the other one doesn't. But when those sketches were made, that was pumped out into the media as well. One thing, though, that the investigators want known and drilled into everyone's head when they hear this story is to think about that guy's story, he claimed to have known all three of their mothers. He used their names every single time. He used their boss's names on occasion. He knew where they worked. The authorities are asking if you're within law enforcement, if you've ever heard of someone using that as their MO, please contact them. It is so unique and so different from any other case that I've ever read or any other case that I've covered, and this has to stick out to someone. The authorities believe that this person that they are looking for is not this big, scary monster of a man. They say that this guy is more like your Ted Bundy type of guy, where he's charming, he's charismatic, he's smart, but secretly deep down, he's this awful human. And they don't believe that this person just turned off whatever evil they have within them after they abducted Amy. They believe that there is a possibility that this man had done this before, maybe not murder someone, but definitely abducted someone, or had been sexually abusing someone for a while and had gotten away with it. Or they think that maybe this person had done time for crimes similar to this case and he had been let out of prison during that time. Unfortunately, the months would go by and fall turned to winter. Snow blanketed the ground, and Christmas lights started popping up on homes around the town. Also popping up were white ribbons all over the town in remembrance of Amy. Everyone living within Bay Village was scared out of their minds because Amy still hadn't been found, and so the kids were terrified that they would be next. On December 11th, what would have been Amy's 11th birthday, her mother Margaret held a birthday party for her daughter and invited news reporters into the home. Margaret had believed that her daughter was still out there alive and that if they could broadcast this party to the public, maybe whoever was holding her hostage would see it and allow Amy to come home. At this point, Amy had been missing for 45 agonizing days. After Amy's disappearance, her father Mark tried to keep things as normal as possible for his son Jason and the family. He recalls to Dateline that he and Amy actually had this newspaper route that they would do every Thursday morning. Amy and Mark would wake up before the sun would rise and go out with their dog named Jake to deliver the newspaper. Mark said that after she disappeared, he kept that paper route for weeks in hopes that if Amy came home, she would have something to come home to. Something for her that was still the same. And this just breaks my heart, thinking of Mark getting up and doing this routine alone, all the while not knowing where his sweet baby girl is. On February 8, 1990, after 105 days, the Mahalovic family would finally get some answers about what happened to 10-year-old Amy. A jogger discovered Amy's body located 50 miles south of Bay Village on County Road 1181 in Ruggles Township in rural Ashland County. Her body had been discovered down a quiet country road. Her body didn't give many clues beyond that it was apparent that she had been sexually assaulted and that she had likely been in that field the entire time, leaving the authorities to believe that Amy was likely murdered not long after she was taken. Amy had suffered a blow to the head as well as being stabbed in the neck. When her body was discovered, the authorities scoured the field a mile in each direction, picking up anything that they could find that didn't naturally grow there. Notably, though, a few of her personal belongings were never recovered, which included her backpack with that binder I mentioned earlier with that best-in-class clasp on it, her boots, as well as her very unique turquoise horsehead earrings. It is believed that these items may have been kept by her killer as some sort of a trophy. All of these items were very unique, and the authorities believe that maybe someone will see these items and remember that they had seen them before. So if any of these items ring a bell, please, please, please contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234. And of course, on social media, I will have pictures of those items. While searching for anything related to Amy's murder, the authorities also picked up a blanket and a homemade curtain that looked like it had been made from a comforter. Now, at the time when these items were picked up, DNA testing wasn't what it is today. Many advancements have been made in science that just weren't around in 1990. They weren't sure if these items were connected to Amy initially, but they had this gut feeling that Amy had been wrapped inside of these items before being dumped on that country road. Over the years, though, those items were tested to see if they could get a DNA profile. In 2016, they got their first break when hairs on the curtain had been matched to hairs taken from the family dog, Jake. By 2016, Jake had long since passed away. But in 1989, when Amy went missing, investigators took samples of his hair just in case it was ever needed. And thankfully, they did because having his hairs on that curtain goes with the theory that investigators believe that Amy was wrapped in that curtain prior to being dumped there. This curtain is also very unique that the authorities are hopeful that someone will recognize it. Investigators are hoping that someone will see this curtain and remember seeing it before, whether it be in someone's house, their barn, whatever. I also want to make note that the area in which Amy was found is very interesting. This had to be a known place to whoever her killer is, because this is not just a place that you would pull off the side of the road and stumble upon. You had to be familiar with this area in order to know that it even existed. So again, if you are suspicious of someone and you know that they're familiar with this part of Ashland County, Ohio, please call in. 12 years after Amy's abduction and murder, her mother, Margaret, passed away at the age of 54. She went to her grave wondering who killed her only daughter. To this day, this case is still actively being worked on. Many say that this is not a cold case because cold cases get put on a shelf and forgotten. Amy is still at the front of everyone's mind who works at the Bay Village Police Department, whether they worked there back in the 90s or if they're new to the department. Everybody knows Amy's story, and there's always someone working on her case. Amy's bicycle still sits inside a small room at the police department after being recovered from the school on that fateful day. Over 10,000 tips have come in on this case, over 30,000 interviews have been conducted, and over 100,000 man hours have been poured into finding Amy's killer. To this day, there are still things being done to finally bring her killer to justice, and I have to say that I admire the Bay Village Police Department for pouring so much resources into this case and trying to find her killer. On October 27th, the 34th anniversary of her murder, Fox 8 ran a story on Amy and said that investigators are taking new steps to solve Amy's murder. Detective Jay Ellish told Fox 8 that about 20 hairs were recently found on the curtain and blanket that Amy had been wrapped in. Those hairs are being tested at a lab in Virginia for DNA. He also said that they are now re-examining Amy's clothing in hopes that DNA that wasn't previously detected could be found now that technology has advanced. Amy was taken far too soon. She had so much life left ahead of her and it's just so tragic to think that the last thing she was off to go do was to help find a special gift for her mother who she loved so much. Amy has been gone for 34 years. Her case left unsolved, and I truly believe that there are people out there that hold the answers whether they know it or not. Someone has to recognize this curtain. Amy's belongings that have never been recovered have to be in someone's possession. It just takes one person to come forward with information to blow this case wide open and to give Amy the justice she deserves. If you or anyone you know has information, you can contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234. You can also contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, make sure you do at Crimeahawley. I will have all pictures and information pertaining to this case listed over there. You can also find me on TikTok where I featured Amy's case earlier this week. Lastly, I want to say thank you to everyone who has been so patient with me, but I want to tell you guys that I appreciate each and every one of you that reached out to me asking about Crime with Holly. I'm so excited to finally be back to bringing you guys all new stories, and until next time, you guys, you know what to do, be aware, and take care. (laughs) Bye-bye.